We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. Welcome to Election Connection with me, Ruth Newman, your host on this grassroots community radio station, WFMP 106.5 FM, whose mission it is to give voice to the voiceless and bring you shows in the public's interest. Now, today's show is of planetary interest and presents an innovative, evolutionary, even a revolutionary approach to solving our problems, which most every Everyone agrees nowadays have become planetary in scope. Whether you're talking about disruption of our climate, nuclear war, pandemics, economic systems, the internet, it's all global and it's rapidly spinning out of control. I think that what you are about to hear will be thought-provoking, uplifting, and to some maybe even mind-blowing. It's all about a concept, a movement, and an organization called SIMPOL, which stands for Simultaneous Policy. I hope you'll give these futuristic thinkers you're about to hear your full attention while they lay out their vision of how we can solve our global problems. Hello and welcome to Simple Insights. My name is Robert Cobbold. Simple Insights is a series of interviews with today's leading thinkers in the field of civilization design, collective intelligence, and conscious evolution. In a world confronted with global warming, pandemics, increasing inequality, and political polarization, Simple Insights aims to bring light to the darkness and chart the course towards a cooperative global society. Today, we're very lucky to have not one, but two Johns, starting off with evolutionary theorist John Stewart, author of the Evolutionary Manifesto and the intellectual groundwork for a lot of our work on simple and conscious evolution. And John Bunzel. John Bunzel is a businessman and a political activist and the founder of Simple and um, has been working on, on promoting global cooperation for the last 20 years. So thank you both for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, Rob. So I just want to start um, by asking you, John Stewart, how you came to the evolutionary worldview, because it's fair to say that your ideas are, you know, a little out of line with the sort of mainstream um, evolutionary biology approach. Um, and I want to ask you how you came to those ideas and then just very briefly sketch the evolutionary worldview as you see it. Well, I got very interested in philosophy as a 19-year-old when I had a, a fishing boat uh, and was a professional fisherman fishing out of Cairns in far north, north Queensland on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and when the wind was blowing, I, I couldn't take my boat out. So I'd go to the local library and I started reading philosophy books. And gradually I realised that my obsession with fishing that had led me at 19 to the Barrier Reef um, was actually being replaced by an obsession with philosophy. So I got interested in philosophy because I had a science degree in zoology uh, that led me to try and understand the philosophical underpinnings of evolution and so on. And then I got interested in organisations. I discovered that most of the organisations that I worked for weren't uh, more competent than the sum of their parts. They were less than their sum of their parts. And that was a challenging question. You know, how could an organisation full of very intelligent, competent people produce so little? And that then fed into an understanding of evolutionary origins of organisation, 
the evolutionary origins of emergence, the evolutionary origins of self-organization and cybernetics. In any event, I did a lot of thinking and a lot of reading, but one day I had an epiphany. And this epiphany was um, while I was in my family room in my home in Canberra uh, in Australia. And what, it, what struck me was that there was an equivalence between a global human society that was governed by global governance that organized that society cooperatively. There was an exact equivalence in cybernetic terms or organizational terms as a cell that was governed and organized by the genetic apparatus, RNA and DNA. And that, that understanding of equivalence across those hugely different spatial scales then led me to, to fill in in between the, the cellular scale and the human scale. And I gradually saw um, the stepwise process by which evolution had moved from these infinitesimally small cooperatives, small scale cells to produce aggregations of these small scale cells to form more complex cells that were communities of small scale cells, and then moved to form cooperatives of those complex cells, which became multicellular organisms like ourselves. And each of us is a constellation of trillions of cells that cooperate together, um, even though they follow their own cellular interests, but because of the way they're organized and regulated by systems of governance, uh, then in the pursuit of their uh, narrow self-interest as cells, because of this form of organization, they actually produce us, they produce our speech, our actions, and so on, even though they care nothing about us whatsoever. And then the next great step was the, the formation of cooperatives of multicellular organisms. And we have uh, ants and other in insects, bees, and so on. And then the emergence of humans. And the story in human history of human evol evolution reproduces this stepwise process of forming larger and larger scale cooperatives. So the first humans were organized into family groups and family groups competed with one another, but they cooperated within the family. And we still have the residue of that now. You know, we're very close to our families. Then groups of families formed the first bands, cooperative bands to form tribes. And then that led to city-states and agricultural communities and eventually empires. And now we have the rise of nation states, which extend human cooperation uh, within a nation over continents. And consistent with this epiphany I had, the obvious next step is very clear. And that is the form of a cooperative organization uh, on the scale of the planet. And that cooperative organization on the scale of the, the planet would be organized on the same basis that evolution has repeatedly produced cooperatives at lower scales of organization at smaller scales. So it would be global governance and broadly what that global governance does is what governance does at all other levels. That is, it aligns the interests of the members of the organization with the interests of the organization as a whole. And that's critically important to, to recognize. The formation of global governance and the formation of multicellular organisms like ourselves and the formation of, of the first simple cells doesn't involve the components giving up their self-interest and becoming saint-like. What the governance does is align the interests of the members of the, the cooperative with those of the cooperative as a whole. And the consequence of that is, is that if it's done right, 
then you have this extraordinary situation where if we had global governance, then it would align the interests of individuals and corporations and nation states with the interests of the planet as a whole. And therefore, corporations motivated purely by self-interest, individuals motivated purely by self-interest, nations motivated only by their self-interest would nonetheless, like the cells in our body, act in ways that produced a coherent cooperative whole. So your evolutionary manifesto was the first introduction I had to any of these ideas, the idea that there's a direction to evolution, the idea that our conscious participation in that direction is necessary. Um, and since then, I've found all sorts of different thinkers around that kind of constellation of ideas, you know, integral theory, spiral dynamics, Ken Wilber, and many, many others. And I just wondered when you wrote the evolutionary manifesto, who'd you been reading? Who was front and center of your mind that, that colored your thinking and colored the way that you described the evolutionary trajectories? Well, because I came from a uh, science background, as opposed to, say, Wilber and integral philosophers and, and so on. Then I was influenced by, you know, the scientific worldview and the development of scientific ideas. And probably the, the, the biggest influence was cybernetics, general systems theory and so on. So broadly, mainstream science is very narrow. It's reductionist. It looks to discover linear chains of causality and so on. And it's very poor at dealing with complexity where there's a community of causality, where you get complexity and the linear thinking can't follow its way through that complexity. It's, so it can't understand complexity. Um, so mainstream science you know, is narrow, doesn't understand complexity and so on. This is demonstrated by its complete failure to find out much of value in psychology or sociology. But throughout the 20th century, the great minds of the 20th century soon realize as they develop their understanding of reality most of which is complex. Uh, they understand that, that science is limited and they see the need to extend science into the area of complexity. And so at, throughout the 20th century, we had holism with, with smuts. Um, we had general systems theory with Batanfoli. We had cybernetics. Uh, we had the Santa Fe Institute and now we have complexity science and so on. But mainstream science has pulled these, these attempts to develop science into these new areas has pulled them back in again by undermining them with the rational critique. But nonetheless, they're the people who influence me and the attempts to explain emergence, explain self-organization, explain how organizations evolve and so on. They're the shoulders on which I stand. Thank you very much. Um, so John Bunzel, you hadn't read John Stewart's Evolutionary Manifesto when you founded Simpol. Um, how did you come to realize that global cooperation was a necessary part of mankind's future evolution? Yeah, well, no, I hadn't. Uh, I think, in fact, the, I think the only book I'd, I'd read at the time, this is back in the, the late 90s, in about 1997, 98, was E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. Uh, I had no particular interest in politics or anything like that. So the sort of epiphany moment for me was during a Sunday lunch with my um, family. Uh, my kids, they, they had been covering climate change at school. And I was just after the meals of doing the, the washing up and my mum was there and we were sort of having a chat. And I, I think I probably had a, a couple of glasses of wine during the meal. And, and she turned around to me and she said, well, what would you do about climate change? Uh, and it was just in that sort of moment of challenge that I sort of went inside myself. And I didn't really know then what was happening, but um, it sounds to me like it was a bit of an altered state experience. 
where it was quite a ruthless letting go, quite a ruthless suppression of ego. And, and then into that empty space came this realization that it would have to happen simultaneously. And, and it was an incredibly powerful, powerful moment. But really, the only thing in my mind at that time was simultaneous. But with that word, somehow there was a huge amount of meaning with it. How can I explain? So the idea that simultaneity means nobody loses out, everybody wins. The idea that it's therefore a gateway from a, a vicious circle, destructively competitive situation, it's the gateway to a new level of operation. Can we just press a bit more on that? So, so why, if nations don't act simultaneously, why does that mean that we can't move forward and solve a problem like climate change? Okay, well, I think that's where my business background was important because we run a, have a small family business, a medium-sized family business, trading internationally in raw materials. And I, so I had some concept of the way global business works. And it was just clear to me that, you know, if, if, if a nation wanted to reduce its emissions, it would have to raise taxes on its businesses. But uh, if those taxes are not raised on businesses in other countries, businesses in country A, where the taxes apply, are, are going to become uncompetitive. Either they'll eventually go out of business, um, they'll lose profitability, lose share value, be taken over, or they'll just actually have to move their operations elsewhere to avoid the higher cost. So it, it was apparent to me that, that this was a vicious circle. Of course, no nation could move first. They were all stuck. And also, this applied not just to climate change, but to many, many, many other global problems that were sort of beginning to become more and more important. So it was just the idea of simultaneity that was key. And also the idea that if competitors can talk about what they might do together simultaneously in the future, they can carry on competing now, but can still talk about and negotiate what they will do together in the future to get themselves out of the bottleneck. You know, so I mean, I, in my first book, I used the analogy of, of a group of boys fighting over a packet of sandwiches. No boy can sort of give up the fight or reduce it you know, reduce his, his aggression, because then he gives up any chance of getting a sandwich. The probable outcome is that the sandwich will be completely trampled on and destroyed and nobody will get them. Right? So it seems to me that simultaneity, simultaneous implementation, simultaneous action was the, the sort of key gateway to moving from that destructively competitive, destructive situation to a cooperative situation where the sandwiches could be shared. And you, you touched in that answer a little bit on how, you know, if it's not in the interest of an individual nation or an individual company to be environmentally responsible, um, then they're not going to. And that obviously has quite a lot of parallels with what John Stewart was saying about how evolution continually finds a way to unify and align incentives between the individual and the collective. Exactly. And so that's why with, with the idea of simultaneous implementation, you're effectively creating a new cooperative context albeit only mentally. Mm. It doesn't exist yet, but we started to talk about it. It's like, what if? What if we all raised corporation tax together? What if we reduced our emissions together or in a proportional way together simultaneously? We would all win. You know, so, so in that way, but until that point occurs, obviously you still compete. Mm. So you, you can kind of have it both ways. And I think that's where 
partly where the alignment comes in that John was talking about, is that you're not, you know, by, by signing up to the Simpol process, you're not losing your competitive position in the, in the current context, but you're stating your readiness to engage in a process that might lead to a, a new cooperative situation that could save our nets. So it's a sort of win-win in a way. For anyone who just tuned in, you're listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, all-volunteer community radio. And the topic today is SIMPOL, which stands for Simultaneous Policy. It's a revolutionary and an evolutionary approach to solving our global problems. So keep listening as evolutionary theorist John Stewart and Simple founder and businessman John Bunzel explain the nuts and bolts of Simple and how it can solve global problems. Um, John Stewart, when you came across uh, Simple, um, how, in what ways did it remind you? In what ways did it put into practice the trajectories of evolution as you'd been describing them? Well, Simple attempts to deal at the global level with exactly the same challenges that evolution has repeatedly had to deal with at every other level where cooperatives arise. So whether it's um, molecular processes or simple cells or complex cells or multicellular organisms, they start off by competing together. Um, if any one of those entities tries to restrain, restrain its, its self-interest for the common good, it will be outcompeted. And that's why at every level, uh, cooperation does not evolve easily. If it evolved easily, this whole trajectory, you know, would have been over in a week. Um, <laughs> a week after life emerged, that would end up at a global system. But no, it's it's the the exact problem that John describes at the global level, and that's very easily seen in economic markets. If if a corporation decides that carbon dioxide emissions are dangerous for the planet, and it voluntarily tries to restrain its emissions, uh, that will be costly. It'll have to put the cost of its products up. It will be outcompeted. It will go out backwards in the market. So evolution's solved that many times at every level. How does it do it? Uh, it's interesting that it has that dimension of simultaneousness that John uh, referred to, but it happens through power. So individuals can't do it. Individuals can't restrain and cooperate together until a powerful entity arises that such as the RNA or DNA of a cell that reaches across the whole group immediately, simultaneously, and simultaneously applies restraints, simultaneously rewards cooperators, restrains free riders, and so on. So that enables cooperation. Now at the human level, we, we can go one further than that. And this is where intentional evolution comes in. This is where understanding the evolutionary process can point to the sort of solutions that John indicates and also energize our commitment to actually implementing them. Uh, so what humans can do is, is learn from past evolution and say, okay, what we need is, is immediate constraints that apply simultaneously across the whole planet, apply to all nations, apply to all corporations and, and simultaneously align their interests. So no one has to restrain themselves and disadvantage themselves in the absence 
absence of restraint from anybody else. So we can use our understanding of past evolution to do that. So when, when I came across simultaneous policy, which was, I think, when John was first writing about it, uh, I immediately saw that he was an, an agent of evolution. The next step of evolution on this planet is to restrain nation states and corporations so they don't destroy the environment because at the moment they've been incentivized to destroy the planet. We needed, we needed to move to a global system to restrain that align interests and so on. And that's exactly what John's um, invention, Simpol, uh, was designed to achieve. So when I saw what he was doing, I thought, well, I should draw his attention to the evolutionary worldview that puts what he's doing in a much broader context and has the potential to energize what he's doing. Um, to create a larger story about what he's doing um, that would capture people's imaginations and so on and lead to, you know, this wider understanding that we actually live our lives embedded in a large-scale evolutionary process um, that has direction and can provide meaning and purpose for our lives because it points to a role, a role we have in the evolutionary process. And that role in relation to global governance is the role that John, you know, is living out. So you, you both talk very clearly about, seems very obvious to me when you guys describe the need to align incentives, that obviously no nation is going to be able to tackle climate change on their own. No co corporation is going to be able to tackle climate change on their own. And yet so much change effort in this area, whether it's activists or, or even individual politicians or people pushing for change, it seems to rest on this kind of moral exhortation that companies just need to behave better or, or, or governments just need to behave better. Um, and yet it seems to be completely missing this systemic piece of the puzzle that it needs to come from a coordinated action. So um, first to John Stewart, why do you think so many people struggle to grasp the ideas that you articulate? And why has it taken so long for science to catch up to this understanding that evolution has a direction and that we need to participate in that if we're going to survive? First of all, uh, it's good to look at why uh, moral exhortation uh, and accusing nation states of being selfish or corporations of being unethical and so on is the first port of call for many activists and so on in the world today. And the reason why is because that was a mechanism, moral exhortation and enforcing moral principles that was used by evolution to organize uh, cooperation at the tribal level of organization. And it worked very effectively at the level of tribal organization because within a tribe, everyone knew one another and through gossip and so on, a very important mechanism, they knew what everyone else was doing. And so if you had moral principles, which were like laws within the tribe and someone was seen to transgress those moral rules, then they would be punished by the tribe through collective action. And the ultimate sanction, of course, was that if you broke the rules of the tribe, you would be uh, thrown out of the tribe. And that was a sentence of death in uh, tribal societies. So we don't live in similar circumstances today. So yes, we have this propensity to define certain actions as, as immoral, but we don't have the sanctions, the ready sanctions that can operate at the scale of a nation. Uh, to bring rogue nations into line or rogue corporations into line. Or I, I shouldn't even say rogue corporations because they're incentivized by our current system. You've got to have sympathy and compassion for them. They're incentivized to be environmentally destructive. 
they're incentivized to be unethical and they can't do anything other. The only choice a modern corporation has is either to destroy the environment or to go out of business. It can't do both. So that brings me to the issue of, yeah, why is it that most people apparently aren't able to see the essentiality of global governance, a system of global governance, in order to solve our current problems caused by competition between corporations and nation states. And the reason, unfortunately, um, and I say unfortunately because it's, it's not a politically correct position to adopt, you know, in a postmodern context, but the reason, unfortunately, is that there are different levels of cognitive development amongst human beings and you see the world differently and you can understand different things at different levels. So uh, the example I always give of, of something that seems startling to a human being and most many of us have experienced it is that when an owner tries to discipline its dog for transgressing uh, the rules of the house, um, the dog will often run uh, into the lounge room and stick its head under a couch. And with its head under the couch, uh, it can't see its master and it thinks its master can't see it. And of course, this is ridiculous to the, the being at the higher level of cognition who's standing behind the dog and looking at it with its rump up in the air and its head under the couch. The cognitive limitation of the dog is that it's a slave to its visual field. The only things that exist for it are things that are in its visual field. It can't mentally go offline and create a mental representation of the environment around it outside its visual field. So to it, its master standing behind it doesn't exist. And to, to give an example now at the human level, it's useful to take Maggie Thatcher as, as an example because she does have some use. She has use as a bad example. She famously said that society doesn't exist, only individuals and family exists. And this wasn't an ideological conclusion she'd come to. It was, it was simply a report of what was in her cognition. Like the dog reporting that, you know, or acting as if it can't see its master um, because it's going, got no mental representation of its master. Similarly, someone like Maggie at the concrete operations level of cognitive development as identified and elucidated by Piaget, um, someone at the concrete level can only see things concretely occurring in its environment. Um, so if you go out into a modern city you'll see people engaged in financial transactions everywhere, buying goods, exchanging money for goods and so on. But nowhere will you see an economy. Similarly, you'll see people, but nowhere will you see a society. You'll see interactions between people, but you won't see a society. So like the dog saying its master's not there, Maggie says there's no such thing as society. She can't see it. So that's getting us to the level of where if you want to understand complex systems, at the concrete operations level, you've got no chance because you can't see the system. You just see these little things happening everywhere. You don't know, see they're coordinated, they're part of a bigger system or whatever. If you're at the analytical rational level, you can't see the system either because you can only trace through linear logical causality. And by far the majority of human beings on the planet today are at those levels. They're not at the level where they can create mental representations of complex phenomenon, particularly large scale phenomenon, like the interactions between nation states at the scale of the planet. And they can't create those representations over long time scales, which you need in order to 
to mentally see evolutionary processes. So until, until you're at the cognitive level where you can see those things, you don't see the need for global governance and you're easily manipulated mentally like United States citizens are to hate global governance and see it as, as the blue capped United Nations um, peacekeepers taking away your fundamental freedoms and, and you know, destroying the, the wonderful American way of life. Well, they used to think that before COVID-19. What my friend referred to as a freedom complex. <laughs> That's right. They have a freedom complex and we're nearing <clears throat> a point in... So just to um, finish it off, if you... So to someone at the cognitive level, then it's like the most obvious thing in the world, that the world needs global governance and we're fried if we don't have it. You know, Einstein spent the last 10 years of his life totally dedicating his time to promoting global governance. Wow. Um, Tolstoy, you know, who was first and foremost a systems thinker rather than a great novel writer, and most of his novels are about systems thinking. You know, he was, he, he saw it back then, H.G. Wells and so on. It's just obvious once you get to that level, but until you get to that level, you're like Maggie Thatcher looking around for a society and not being able to find one. For anyone who just tuned in, you're listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, all-volunteer community radio. And the topic today is SIMPOL, which stands for Simultaneous Policy. It's a revolutionary and an evolutionary approach to solving our global problems. So keep listening as evolutionary theorist John Stewart and Simple founder and businessman John Bunzel explain the nuts and bolts of Simple and how it can solve global problems. Um, John Bunzel, does this speak to a lot of the frustrations you've had trying to promote Simple? Does this does this ring a bell? Yes, <laughs> big time. Yes, I mean, you know, when I. You know, when I first sort of came up with the idea of Simpa, I just thought, oh, this is so obvious. It's so bleeding obvious, you know. And I thought, well, look, you know, I'm a businessman. I sell paper. I, I'm not a campaigner. I know what I'll do. I'll go and talk to Greenpeace. I'll go and talk to Friends of the Earth. I'll go and talk to these, the, you know, they'll pick it up. They'll understand it. Boom. And then I can go back to, to doing my paper sales. But, but what I found was the very opposite. And I didn't understand why until I, I started to read Ken Wilber and uh, Spiral Dynamics and so forth. But I came up against a complete brick wall. And that's, that's because, as, exactly as John explained, their level of cognitive development is very much stuck in this moralistic us versus them, we're the good guys, corporations and governments are the bad guys. And I think there's also a kind of, um, that's very energizing. And it's also probably good for fundraising, you know, so I think there are also reasons why those campaigning organizations kind of are a bit stuck in that mindset. And it's also why we, we have had almost zero success in attracting um, the support of those kinds of organizations for Simpol, because they, they would almost see Simpol as delaying the saving of the environment or the, the solution of global warming. But what they don't realize is that what they're asking governments and corporations to do is to act against their own self-interest. Mm. You know, by being moralistic, you're basically saying, don't do that. 
But I think also where John's point about cognitive understanding comes in is, for example, if you see a corporation kicking out a thousand people, you could say to yourself, that's bad. That's a greedy corporation motivated by greed and has kicked out those people to make more profit. But what, what maybe you don't see is that the corporation has perhaps done that because it's losing competitiveness with its competitors in some other country needs to cut costs to stay competitive and that if it didn't kick out a thousand people today it might have to kick out five thousand in six months time you know so so it's a little bit like it seems to me like the the, the global economy is like a two-engined aircraft you know you've got the greed engine and you've got the competition or the fear of losing out engine and they both push the plane in the same direction but but it seems that, that the global justice movement is just looking at at one side of the plane and one engine. Hmm. So, it, you know, if, if something bad happens, all it sees is bad action, you know, greedy action, because the greed, greed is much more easy to spot, right? Hmm. Um, but what yeah. it doesn't see is, is the competitive, you know, the far more powerful uh, forces of global competition that are driving the other, the other engine is actually the far more powerful one. So to this very day, I think the whole global justice movement, frankly, has the wrong mindset, uh, sadly. And, and that, you know, I, I would say I feel a bit like Dr. Phil on, on one of these, um, psych, you know, pop psychology programs, you know, you know, for the last 40 years. How good is it working for you? It, you know, it, it, ain't, it ain't working. So, you know, the insanity is to keep doing it. You know, but, but of course, the simple, the, the philosophy behind simple is that it's not really the fault of governments and corporations. It's they're, they're sort of driven to do it, as John explained. But that completely deflates this us and them narrative, you see. It says, well, actually, although, yes, of course, there are some evil people out there, generally speaking, it's not that governments or corporations are evil or negligent. It's that they're stuck in a vicious circle and they can't get out. They don't know how to get out. Uh, and so um, blaming and shaming them uh, and, and trying to force them to act against their own uh, individual interests. It's just not going to work. And it isn't working. For anyone who just tuned in, you're listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, all-volunteer community radio. And the topic today is SIMPOL, which stands for Simultaneous Policy it's a revolutionary and an evolutionary approach to solving our global problems. So keep listening as evolutionary theorist John Stewart and Simple founder and businessman John Bunzel explain the nuts and bolts of Simple and how it can solve global problems. What, is it, what exactly is at stake here? Because we've, we've talked, obviously, about how climate change needs to be resolved at the global level. Well, that's quite a lot at stake already. Um, but what, John Bunzel, stick with you for a second, how, how do you see this playing out if we can't manage to put into place Simpol or something like Simpol, some level of global governance? What, what issues are coming down the road if we can't manage to make that leap? Well, I mean, ultimately, complete collapse. If we don't cooperate, global warming is, is going to run out of control. If we don't cooperate, you know, that the owners of modern uh, technology and AI technology, you're already seeing this with the Googles and the Amazons and the, you know, the, the, the robber barons of the internet age, let's call them, uh, you know, are just um, 
basically anything that can move globally freely across national borders, whether it's climate change, global uh, international crime syndicates, or whether it's multinational corporations or, or commercial banks, anything that can move globally and can, can play one government off against another has an advantage over ordinary people, the middle and lower classes that are nationally rooted. And, and that rubber band is just gonna pull whether, so whether it's climate change, whether it's resources, whether it's social cohesion, I mean, you're already seeing it now with the polarization, political polarization, it's ultimately just going to break. We're all going to go down the tubes. Mm. And um, just, to, just to press a, a bit more on that thing about inequality and, and, and tax avoidance, how is tax avoidance something that requires global cooperation? And, 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 and how does that speak to this problem of, you know, mega corporations moving their money across borders, etc.? Well, because if you, uh, you know, if you can avoid tax, um, whether you're an individual or a, a corporation, you're going to um, put more money in your own pocket or into the pocket of your shareholders. You're going to be more competitive. You're going to have more money to invest in taking over some other company or in, in some new technology, whereas companies that abide by the rules are ultimately will lose out. And how, how can Simple resolve an issue like that? Well, I, th I think what we need to do is to get governments to realise that they're caught in a vicious circle, first of all. And when they, when they see that and, and then see how it applies to so many areas of you know, so many global issues, including, for example, also outer space governments uh, and things like that, they will, I think, realise that, my God, if we don't cooperate globally together, we're all going to lose out. Mm. That's why simultaneous implementation, the three aspects of SIMPOL that align the global interest with the national self-interest. Well, there's four things I would say. One is simultaneous implementation. If all or sufficient nations move together, nobody loses out, everybody wins. Second is that the, the policies that are implemented, the solutions that are implemented, need to cover at least two complementary issues. Trouble is with one of the reasons the United Nations is failing, I think, now on climate negotiations is just dealing with one single issue. But if, you know, carbon emissions. But if you, you, you know, any, take any single issue, there'll always be some nations that win and others that lose. You know, the USA has got the most emissions to cut. It's got the highest costs. It's got no incentive to cooperate or no immediate incentive to cooperate. But if you had a, a global tax raising, you know, global wealth tax or a currency transactions tax, that the proceeds from the tax could be used to pay off the, the big losers on the climate part of the agreement which is kind of like International Relations 101, you know, but what, why the UN isn't following that process, I don't know. But it, it, you know, it's, it's, like, it's not surprising that it's not working. So I think you need a multi-issue policy agenda. Uh, the third thing I think that's needed is that currently international negotiations are talking just about targets for emissions reduction, but no nation knows what every other nation is going to actually do to achieve those targets. And so there's so much uncertainty uh, and, and as a result of that uncertainty, you know, no, no government wants to act to say maybe increase its taxes or regulations because it might harm its particular businesses if competitive countries aren't doing the same thing. So there needs to be transparency about the detail of, of what's going to be implemented. Finally, you need citizen voter pressure. You need a, a means by which citizens can use their votes to incentivize politicians, parties and governments to cooperate. And I think that's 
to my mind, the unique aspect of Simple is that it engages our votes in a rather new way. I'm going to get on to the details of Simple yeah. in just a second. And you say, you know, you mentioned lots of issues about, you know, tax avoidance, climate change, obviously, and AI regulation, regulating outer space. You know, you can make a similar argument with nuclear disarmament, but that needs to come, you know, globally simultaneously. Um, I'd just like to go to you, John Stewart. What do you think is at stake here if we can't um, form some form of global cooperative? What, 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 what exactly... What are we missing out on? What does the future of uh, evolution on this planet look like if we can make that step? And what does it look like if we can't? Well, the the obvious consequence to humanity is is the the end of human civilization and environmental degradation and global warming will achieve that. The threat of nuclear war um, is far worse than it ever was when people used to panic about it in the 60s and 70s. Pakistan has nuclear weapons. The red-headed clown, um, you know, has his finger on the nuclear button, uh, Donald Trump. So obviously this conversation took place during the Trump presidency. But, you know, you'd say, well, okay, what's the consequence though from an evolutionary perspective? And from an evolutionary perspective, it's obvious that this process that has arisen on this planet, the emergence of life, the stepwise increase in the scale of cooperation that eventually leads to a global uh, organisation, a global living entity that coordinates and adapts as a coherent whole, that that process is what's meant to happen. There are billions you know, of planets throughout the, the universe on which life will emerge. This has happened before elsewhere. It's happening now elsewhere. It'll happen in the future, elsewhere. And it's obvious what's meant to happen. Life begins at a very small scale on a planet. It develops um, just like the embryo of a chicken develops and it produces a global system, um, a global organism. That's what's meant to happen. Also what happens on planets is that it reaches the stage where just before you get a global system, you have a cooperation between very large scale entities, and that cooperation can drive the demise of that developing embryo. It can result in a failed evolutionary experiment. It can be an egg that never hatches, an egg that goes rotten. So that's what we're confronted with here on this planet. It's, it's a problem of evolutionary dimensions, not just you know, human dimensions. It's the failure of the unfolding of life, the evolution of life and the production of a global entity on this planet. You talk as well about, um, I mean, just because obviously for a lot of people, we've talked about global governance, but they still see it as this kind of the idea that people have in their minds as a kind of one world government or sort of conspiracy theory of like, you know, a few evil, powerful men in a boardroom with unimaginable power. Um, but what what is a global cooperative society, or even you describe it as a global super organism, what does it look like? What qualities does that have? And how can we alleviate some of those fears that people have? Well, all it will do is align the self-interest of corporations, individuals and nation states with those of the whole. So people will still be able to act freely uh, on their self-interest. They won't perceive it any different. It's just the array of options they have uh, will not involve destroying the planet. It won't involve unethical behaviour. Um, the array of options that are in their self-interest will be options 
that benefit the planet and benefit the future evolution of, of life on this planet and the emergence of this superorganism. So they won't feel constrained. They won't be stopped from doing anything that doesn't damage you know, the, the global system and its goals. Furthermore, what will happen is what has happened at every other level when you get a cooperative system that's organised by governance emerge. So what always happens is you get greater differentiation, greater specialisation, because that's what goes hand in hand with cooperation. So when you get cooperation, you get people acting together, their individual talents being knitted together to produce a greater whole. You get recognition um, of the desirability of different perspectives and so on, because the end goal is to produce a global system, a global organ organism that is highly creative, highly evolvable. It's not a steady state that, you know, is the end of this, that stays in existence for billions of years and goes nowhere, just squatting on this planet on which it emerges. It's about the production um, of a whole new level of life that then goes on adventures of its own, has interactions with life that's emerged elsewhere and so on, and does things that are as unimaginable to us as our lives are unimaginable to a bacterium uh, in our stomach, in our intestines. So none of, none of that involves the suppression of creativity in individual humans. It's the exact opposite. It involves enhancing creativity, creating diversity, nurturing diversity, and using diversity. For anyone who just tuned in, you're listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM, all-volunteer community radio. And the topic today is SIMPOL, which stands for Simultaneous Policy. It's a revolutionary and an evolutionary approach to solving our global problems. So keep listening as evolutionary theorist John Stewart and Simple founder and businessman John Bunzel explain the nuts and bolts of Simple and how it can solve global problems. So, um, John Bunzel, how does when an individual signs up to Simple and they pledge their support for, for global cooperation as John Stewart and you both see it, what happens next and how do we get from there to the emergence of a, a, a cooperative global society? So when, the, when someone signs up to Simpol, basically they're saying that they will give preference at all future national elections to politicians or parties that have signed the pledge to implement Simpol alongside other governments to the probable exclusion of those politicians and parties who haven't signed the pledge. So that declaration by individual citizens, which we then forward to their member of parliament, or if there's an election going on, we forward it to the candidates that are standing for election in their, in their area, uh, that, that provides a strong incentive on politicians to sign the pledge. And um, if you think about it from a politician's point of view, there's no disadvantage in signing the pledge because the policies only get implemented when all or sufficient nations are on board. So there's no disadvantage not in not signing. There's an advantage in signing because you get a better chance of getting the votes of Simpol supporters. But there's also a stick, 
you know, so that's the carrot. There's a stick in the sense that if if you as a politician don't sign up, but your competitor candidate signed up instead, you could lose out, you know, because many, many elections are actually being won and lost on quite fine margins. So Simpol doesn't require a majority of citizens. It only requires the critical number to tip the balance. And, and often, you know, we found in, in a number of elections over the last 20 years uh, in the UK, uh, for example, where um, in marginal, you know, very tightly con contested uh, constituencies, once one candidate signs up, then the next one signs up, then the next one signs up, then the next one. And we end up with like all three or four competing candidates having signed the pledge, even, you know, with, with the election being, you know, two or three weeks to, down the road. So whoever wins, Simpol wins. You know, so it's a completely new way of doing politics at the global level that doesn't stop you ultimately from voting who you want to vote for, but does give a very strong signal to politicians that they better sign up to Simpol if they want the best chance of getting our vote. And presumably that can ratchet all the way up to the potentially global level. Well, it can certainly ratchet, but the idea, obviously it can only work in democratic countries because in, in non-democratic countries, that there, there is no electoral process or not one that, that uh, citizens can really call democratic. But the idea of what we're trying to do is to get the ball rolling in democratic countries first. And you know, if we reach a point uh, in the world where maybe the United Nations system perhaps, I, I mean, I hope, I hope it succeeds, but should it continue to fail, something like Simpol could become the only game in town. And by that time, I think non-democratic countries too will be much more cognizant of the fact that they need solutions to a lot of these problems too. And so they could voluntarily just join the process alongside the democratic countries. And then you have the possibility of a global cooperative agreement that really sticks. And you know, the, the, the point about it sticking is important because if you, if you have an agreement that is seen to be in every nation's interest, the enforcement of that agreement, the cooperative enforcement of that agreement becomes in every nation's interests too. But I, but I think coming back just very briefly, Rob, coming back to your question about uniformity, you know, Simpol, for example, doesn't mean a one size fits all. It rather means that, for example, you know, it's not, it's not a question of every country in the world having the same level of corporation tax, for example. It could mean simply an agreement that every nation increases its, its relative level by a certain agreed percentage so that everyone moves simultaneously, but you know, still with the, you know, differentiations that, that perhaps exist now or maybe with some adjustments. And then maybe some, some kickback to tax havens to, to get them to agree to stop their harmful practices or something like that. You know? So um, it's not a question of everyone doing the same thing. You know, it's a question of negotiation and what's appropriate for the, the needs and abilities of each nation. Um, so we're sort of nearing the end of our time here. I just wondered, is there anything else, uh, first to you, John Buns, that you think we'd like to cover or that you'd like to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things I'd like to ask John is, I mean, cooperation is important, but why is it the global level that is important now and not necessarily local level cooperation or, or regional cooperation? Basically, you need to apply governance um, at the level that you have the destructive competition arising. So let's let's look at the behaviour of corporations. If corporations, even if they were 
restricted in their activities to the particular a particular nation state. If a, a nation state can regulate things within its own borders, but if you have events going on or causes and effects that extend beyond the borders of the nation state, then no matter how powerful that nation is within itself, it can't control those things that extend beyond its borders. And, that, and that's the general principle of subsidiarity. It's also the general principle that applies at every level at which cooperative organisations arise throughout the, the whole evolutionary process, that you get cooperation between entities within a particular group, but the destructive competition between those groups still exists. And then you get a cooperative that, that binds those competing groups together into a higher level cooperative, but there are still externalities. There are still then the interactions between that larger scale cooperative and others. So you need overarching governance to align their interests with the bigger whole. So we're, we're at a stage where we have, to a degree, governance within nations, and that governance can control interactions within those nations. But we, we have extraordinarily, potentially dangerous interactions between nations for which there is no governance at the moment. We have extraordinarily dangerous interactions between corporations that drive global warming that extend beyond the borders of any one state and therefore are uncontrollable by any one state. So you need, you need governance at the global level that arches over the whole planet and aligns the interests of all those competing interests with those of the planet as a whole. And just um, one more question for you, John Stewart. Um, how is that step to global cooperation? How is that different from the steps that have been, you talked about a lot of the similarities between the next evolutionary step that we need to take. And yet at the same time, there is a difference that once we're at this global level, there's no outgroup that we can compete against to drive the emergence of that global cooperative. So how can we, how can we explain that problem briefly and then how can we navigate that? Yes, that's, that's a very important issue from the um, big picture evolutionary perspective. So uh, when cooperatives first emerge at lower levels of evolution, there's a population of cooperatives. So those cooperatives compete with one another. And that competition is extremely useful because it drives the evolution of those cooperatives. So it drives them to develop agency, to, to develop systems of governance that, that uh, integrate them effectively that enable them to adapt as a whole, uh, to act as a whole and so on. And you know, part of what it drives is, is a system like a nervous system, for example, at the level of multicellular organisms that enables them to adapt for the inside now as well as the outside future. However, at the global level, there isn't a population of, of global organisms that are competing with one another. So what it, miss, what it misses compared with all the previous levels is a process of competition between a population of global organisms that will drive the development of the global organism, the development of its own intelligence, of its own capacity to act as a coherent agent in its own right, to form its own goals and so on, whatever they demand when it becomes part of you know, wider scale um, systems. So that's, that's the point at which you only go further in evolutionary terms, you only develop the superorganism uh, if it happens intentionally. So if you have sentient organisms that make up that global system that have learned from previous evolution, that see what the trajectory of evolution is and use that understanding of the trajectory 
to intentionally develop the superorganism and develop its capacities as an agentic. Agentic means that which expresses agency or control once again. And develop its capacities as an agentic superorganism that can adapt as a coherent whole in its own right. And that's the role of humanity. So this global process of evolution only hatches a global entity. If the sentient organism that's at the heart of that emerging global entity wakes up to the nature of the evolutionary process, uses that to guide it, and decides to intentionally drive the process forward. If that doesn't happen, then the global organism doesn't hatch. Effectively, it's as if the egg, which is the, the developing organism of the planet, goes rotten. So I always think that uh, philosophy is at its best when it's practical. So um, just to draw this fascinating conclusion to a close, and thank you both so much for participating, um, I'd like to speak directly to whoever's watching, to whoever's listening to this, and say that your way of putting into practice John Stewart's evolutionary theory of participating actively in evolution is to take literally one minute to sign up on simpol.org. That is S as in Susan, I am as in Mary, P as in Peter, O L dot O R G. Um, and pledge your support for the system of global governance to help get that ball rolling. Um, because truly the future of humanity is at stake. We have potential existential threats coming down the road, whether it's climate change, whether it's nuclear war, whether it's inequality because of tax avoidance that threaten not just the well-being, but the very survival of our species. So I urge you to go and sign up on simple.org, share this video, tell your friends, tell your parents, and, you know, let's all find a way to unite as a species. It's what, you know, so many visionary thinkers, whether it's, a, you know, scientists or philosophers or even religious figures have been saying for thousands and thousands of years that humanity's future is together or not at all. And I look forward to going with all of you on that very exciting journey. Thank you both so much, both Johns. Thanks very much. Thank you, Rob. That was Robert Cobald interviewing evolutionary theorist John Stewart and John Bunzel, businessman, political activist and founder of Simpol, and SIMPOL stands for Simultaneous Policy. You can find out more about SIMPOL and how it proposes to bring humanity together to solve our global problems by going to their website, www.simpol.org. This is Ruth Newman thanking you for listening to Election Girl.